Hi, I'm Lou Eisen, boxing writer and historian, and today we have a special treat. We have Hall of Fame, International Boxing Hall of Fame promoter. Actually, he's a member of eight box or eight Hall of Fames, and he is, if there's a Mount Rushmore of boxing promotion, of sports promotion, Russell Peltz is on it. He's not only one of the greatest boxing promoters ever to have lived, going back 300 years, but he's one of the greatest promoters, sports promoters of all time in any sport. And extremely prolific and described by my surrogate father, Angela Dundee, as the only honest man in professional boxing. And that's saying something. Uh, as I said, he's a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. He's also a winner of the prestigious James J. Walker uh, Boxing Writers Association of America Award for long and meritorious service to boxing. The list of fighters, world champions that he's promoted is like looking at Jack Nicholas's victory page on the PGA website. It's it's endless. So this is just some, just a few. Uh, Mike Rossman, light heavyweight champions, Marvin Johnson, Matthew Saad Muhammad, Michael Spinks, Eddie Mustafa Muhammad, Prince Charles Williams. He also promoted Marvelous Marvin Hagler, uh, world heavyweight champion Ernie Terrell, the incredible former world bantamweight champion, Jilton Jeff Chandler, who not enough people know about, Robert Bam Bam Hines, former junior middleweight champion who beat my hero, Matthew Hilton. And he he uh, published his books every years ago, which just won the West Coast Boxing Writers Association Book of the Year. And this book is called $30 and a Cut Eye. And you can't say you have a boxing library if you don't have this book. This book is very evocative and it's absolutely magnificent. And we are pleased as punch to welcome Hall of Fame promoter, Russell Peltz to our show today. Glad to be here, Lewis. Looking forward to this. Thank you. Me too. You know, I, I, there's parts of your book where you laugh out loud, and then there's parts where you're just terrified. And the laugh out loud, Roger, is it Mtagawa? Um, Mtagawa. Mtagawa, who you said about in the eye exam, he didn't fail it because he couldn't see, he failed it because he couldn't read. Well, that's what his manager told everybody. That's it was probably story. a combination that he couldn't read and he couldn't see. You you know the story of Frank the Animal Fletcher, who you knew obviously, and and um, was fighting Juan Roldan. And after he got knocked down, he did a backward somersault. And in between rounds, the referee said, "Do you know where you are?" And there at Caesar's Palace, he said, "I'm in New York." And so Padilla wanted to stop the fight, and his manager said, "No, no, no, no. He didn't know where he was before the fight. You know, geography is not his strong point." But well, um, yeah. Frankie was a trip. Yeah, I, I was speaking about him with with uh, Tim Witherspoon a couple nights ago, and um, I, I have a question to ask you about Philadelphia. Angelo Dundee, who was from Philadelphia, as you well know, said that there's tough, there's super tough, and then there's Philadelphia tough guys that you could hit with your best shot, and they just laugh at you. Where does this come from? Why have Philadelphia fighters? traditionally not only been great world champions, but so incredibly tough. Well, I think the city was fortunate to have the man, in my opinion, who was the greatest promoter who ever lived that nobody knows about, and that was Herman Taylor. Herman Taylor did the legwork. He was the real promoter of the first Dempsey-Tunney fight that drew 120,000 people 
right. in the rain. And 26 years later, in the same stadium, Marciano Walcott, he did Joe Lewis. Um, so, you know, he kept boxing going here from, I think he started in 1914, and he, his last card was in 1976. Wow. So there was a lot of opportunities here. And with the migration of the good black fighters from the South to Philadelphia, they got here before they got to New York. Right. Um, so it's a tough, it was a tough, hard scrabble city, Philly. Known more probably for its top contenders than world champions. But of course, you're talking about a time when it was tougher to become a world, a real world champion. Right. Well, Lou Tendler was one of the all-time greats. He's from Philadelphia and and uh, gave Benny Leonard the fight of his life. And twice. Twice, yeah. And I was just looking at a very old book I have from the 1800s. Owen Ziegler was a fighter in the 1880s, was another great fighter. So the history of Philadelphia. But I mean, you could say, reason, is it fair to say that Philadelphia has produced as many great quality fighters as any other place in the world, if not more, along with New York? Yeah, but yes, but New York, I don't know how many, well, they could say the same about Philly, how many were born and bred in New York. Um, you could say that about Philly, Frazier coming from North Carolina, Briscoe from Georgia, Boogaloo Watts from South Carolina. Um, but I think they established themselves in Philly a lot earlier than they established themselves in New York. New York was like the Las Vegas of its day where all the top fighters would go to because Madison Square Garden was the venue. But um, I don't know, I'm prejudiced toward Philly. Well, you, you made me smile in the book when you mentioned briefly Al Bummy Davis, who was my father's favorite fighter, along with Joe Lewis, the great lightweight from... Um... You know, there's a great story. Joe Gramby, who was, I hate to call him the greatest black manager of all time, but... Mm. He managed Bob Montgomery, and he was very close with Herman Taylor. Right. And um, they wanted to put Montgomery in with Bummy Davis in the garden. and um, But he was already scheduled to fight Bo Jack for the title two weeks later. Now, this was in the day before the 30-day 30 30 um, suspension. If you got knocked out, you couldn't fight for 30 days. So Mike Jacobs, Gramby didn't want the fight. Mike Jacobs, the promoter at the Garden, guaranteed him that no matter what happened in the Bummy Davis fight, which was a 10-rounder, he would still fight Bo Jack two weeks later for the title. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Montgomery got knocked out in the first round in front of sixteen or 17,000 people. Two weeks later, he beat Bo Jack for the world lightweight title in the same ring in front of 18,000 people. Wow. I mean, that's how, that's what, that's the kind of man Mike Jacobs was. Mm -hmm. And that's where boxing was back in those days. And Bummy Davis had a tremendous uh, left hook. My father was crushed because here in Toronto, where the anti Semitism was high, all it said in, in the newspaper here was Jew boxer dead. And that was it. He, he had to call his cousins in New York to get the newspaper sent up here, you know, to find out about the, um, about the history of him. I hope we're not heading back to those days. I, I hope not either. I mean, there was recently, uh, the, the Seaman Wiesenthal Museum opened up here, Toronto Holocaust Museum recently. 
And there was a survivor of Treblinka who said, you know, I'm in my 90s and I remember coming into the world in a concentration camp. It just seems now I'm going to be leaving the world and things aren't any better. So, yeah. but I, I, you know, I agree with you. Did you encounter any of that racism in your career when you were starting out or during your career? No, I, I really didn't. I, I never did. Not that I can think of now. Right. One of the things that terrified me reading in your book was, and it's like a punch in the stomach when you had your office firebombed. And I mean, I, I don't know how, how do you re, you, you must have just gone numb. How do you take that in over time? Well, we were at Foxwoods, my wife and I, and we had just settled in to a beautiful suite that Jimmy Burchfield had given us. I was, at that time, I was um, the guy in charge of making fights for ESPN. This was in June of 99, and we'd been out, uh, you know, having a good time with the, the crew, Teddy Atlas, Bob Papa, Robbie Biner, and we went back to our room. I guess I got the call about one in the morning from Maureen Sachs, my vice president, who lived in the building, and she was screaming into the phone that the office had been firebombed. Wow. So naturally, you know, we left and drove back through the night. But, uh, you know, we never found out who it was. A lot of people had, had theories. I lost um, one whole room was destroyed of boxing memorabilia, one of a kind stuff. Um, I read that. Yeah. But you go on. You, you go on. It's um, We had windows installed, the kind that you can't throw a bomb through now. Right. But, uh, you know, it. Um, well, the, the boxing memorabilia, I mean, that's more than boxing. It's it's American and world history and irreplaceable. I had a Kid Gavilan Gil Turner poster, which wow. I've never seen before. When they fought for the welterweight title in 1952, at the time, the crowd of over 39,000 was the largest crowd ever to watch a world welterweight title fight until Duran Leonard in Montreal in 1980. Yeah. I've never seen one. and I've never seen one to this day. And that was just one of many things, original covers of the ring magazine, but what are you going to do? It's yeah. You move on. You know, one of the things that I, I, I don't know if it irritates you, but it irritates me when, when I'm talking to people in the media that they, boxing's dead ufc is where it's at but when you look at the numbers you know ufc does well the first time in but then sort of trends down where boxing always does well in in similar same locations why doesn't the media get that i don't boxing will always be around mm -hmm. but i'm I see much more. I see much more coverage of UFC, especially at ESPN, which is invested in boxing. They're invested in UFC too. But when I look on their website, when I look at the TV, I see that they give much more coverage to the UFC than they do to boxing. Um, I'm not. Listen, there will always be big fights in boxing. What I'm worried about is the middle class. I I couldn't. If I were getting into boxing today, I couldn't do it because an independent promoter cannot exist today in a major town, in a major sports town. There's too much competition for the entertainment dollar. 
And the biggest problem with boxing is that um, 95% of the income is generated by 5% of the people. Mm -hmm. You've got top rank Eddie Hearn, Al Heyman, and Golden Boy controlling just about every inch of television. When you had USA Network and they gave shows to Art Palullo, Bill Kazersky, Ron Weathers, Mike Akery, me, Murad Muhammad, I mean, they spread the wealth so you could develop fighters. The problem is the, it might look good in the display window, but the cupboards are bare. I hate to be a, a downer, but right. I think no, the time when, when boxing was so wonderful, when it was so important, and one of the things that I think really hurts boxing that nobody really understands is the death of newspapers. Because, and I think I said this in the book, if you were a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and so you bought the newspaper and you went to read about the Eagles, but as you turn the pages, there would be a story on the fight coming up. So you'd have that crossover. Now, if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan, you go to the Eagles website. There's no crossover. Right. The only people going to the boxing websites are the diehard fans. And that, that's a big problem. Right. And it's caused by, I guess, by the internet in part. But I remember growing up, if you, I, I was sort of an oddity in Canada because I didn't care for hockey. I liked boxing and baseball. And that's all that mattered to me. It's still the same thing. But there used to be writers, uh, I mean, yourself when you wrote for the bulletin that you wanted to be the boxing writer. And there were guys that specialized only in that. Oh, and listen, now we, had, we had a boxing writer, we had a golf writer, we had a track and field writer, we had a college basketball, pro basketball. We had a writer who covered horse racing, one who covered auto racing. I mean, come on, it was, it was a different world. You'd, you'd go downtown on a Saturday night and, and the Sunday papers on seats, all week, all week, the papers would come out with three or four different editions. But on Saturday night, there'd be like six or seven editions. So you'd go downtown to a newsstand around eight o'clock and you'd pick up the paper and it would say Phillies lead Milwaukee 5-3 after six innings. Right. That, that's, that's how important newspapers were back then. Well, I remember when Pacquiao fought Mayweather and leading up to it for a couple months here in Toronto, in the Toronto Star, no coverage not of the fight and no coverage after the fight. And when I spoke to the editor there, their attitude was, who cares? And, and I look up the editor who I spoke to and they're coming from the automotive section in the newspaper, you know, and Angela Dundee was saying, you should have asked, do you know any, do you know who these guys are? I mean, it's sad because as you know, in the twenties and thirties and forties, it was boxing and baseball were the two top sports. Professional. Yes. Yeah. And just incredible. Now I, I have a quick, Angela used to say, and you were brilliant at this, he used to say the art of building a prospect into a champion is a lost art, and no one did that better than you. Why is it a lost art? Is it because, as you said in your book, guys just want safe, managers just want safe fights for their fighters? Well, when he says building a champion, he means doing it the right way. Right. At a time when it meant something to be a world champion. Today, it's... It, it's, so it's, it's um, everybody wants to be undefeated. I think Floyd Mayweather really cemented that in everybody's mind in the 21st century. So 
you have guys that are world you know why isn't this guy in the hall of fame he won five titles in six different divisions i mean it, it's let, let's say you have four let's just say you have four lightweight champions wbo wba ibf and wbc in the 1950s those those guys there would be one of them would be the world champ the other seven would be one two three four five six so you'd have so in the 50s the number five contender would be fighting the number six contender even though today he's a world champion so we're not kind of stowed is not inducting the number five lightweight contender from the 1950s but today they'll induct a guy who's got three belts in four different divisions because it sounds better it's just it's it's it waters down the sport it's it's ludicrous it really is and i think i think the amount of world champions is probably if not the biggest reason for boxing's loss of popularity but it's in the top one or two yeah, you're right. I, I, absolutely. Because I have friends of mine that have watched fights and they just said, I, there's one world, how can there be four or five champions? It's, it's ridiculous. It's like, what, what are, it's like if the NBA, if there were no playoffs, and I say this all the time, and each division winner walks around saying, I'm the world champ. That's what boxing is. Yeah, it, it's frustrating because, in, as you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, one undisputed champion and there were eight divisions you knew who the names were from flyweight up to heavyweight and that was it and sorry go ahead i know i used to be <laughs> when carlos ortiz was lightweight champ in the early 60s i could name all the lightweight champs backwards from carlos ortiz back to benny leonard i couldn't even tell you who the lightweight champs are today i don't I, you know it's the world the term world champion is so meaningless today it's all about the money and listen i think it's great that these guys are being uh, i hate to use the word overpaid but because boxing is such a dangerous sport but the money they're getting paid is monopoly money it doesn't equate to television ratings or paid crowds it's right. just espn and DAZN and showtime hemorrhaging money and, and I don't know why. Maybe they think one day it'll turn around and the ratings will change. But everybody the other day was going crazy because what fight was it a week or two ago that did 1.2 mil? Oh, Tiafimo Lopez. Did they right. do a million? They did a million buys. Okay. So Ali Spinks from the Superdome in 1978 did 90 million homes. Wow. And we're doing cartwheels because Lopez and um taylor just did a million buys it's that's incredible you think i mean that's one of the problems i mean pbc is also hemorrhaging money and you know i mean growing up i was like privileged to grow up with angelo as a mentor but you know one of the problems he said is and i guess you'd agree everyone wanted floyd mayweather money when floyd mayweather came and everyone wanted Ali money, but not everyone gets that kind of money. That's extremely rare. But now you have all these fighters asking for money way out of proportion to what they've accomplished. Or does it really come down to asses in the seats? If you draw the fans, you get the money. And if you don't, that's just the way it goes. If these fighters had to depend 
on ticket sales, they'd starve. They would starve. Right. And if and if and if Showtime and DAZN and ESPN were actually paying what what fights are worth, they'd still they'd still starve. I mean, they'd make decent money, but hey, listen, that's great that they're making four or five, six million dollars fighting what we used to see every Friday night on the Friday night fights. But don't turn around and tell me that they're all time greats because it's just, how can you compare a world champion today? When Teofimo Lopez beat Lomachenko, I was reading where he could have beat Willie Pep. I was reading that on the internet. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, but the, there's a whole generation of boxing fans that think this is what boxing always was. Like well, that's, this. That's because of the internet, because they make these top 10 lists. This brings me to another question I have for you. This is the top 10 list, and you look at a guy and he's who's making the list, he's 22. Well, how could you possibly know top 10? You're eliminating everyone, you know, before 1990. You're not, you're not including oh, right. Jack Johnson and, and or Jeffries or or Benny Leonard, Lou Tendler, all these guys. Luke Tendler, there isn't a lightweight today in the world that would have gone more than two or three rounds with him. I mean, he would have wiped out that whole division if he were around today. So when one of the things I noticed on, online with your comments, and it drives me nuts too, and you were there. So they can't, I, I, this is what kills me, that you were at these fights, you promoted them, and people still argue with you. It's in, it's insane. Like the first fight with Willie, Willie Monroe, Willie Dwayne Monroe, and he convincingly really beats Hagler and beats him up. And then these idiots, these revisionists come online and said Hagler was robbed. I mean, how, how, I mean, don't you think comments such as that hurt the sport? I that's mean, why I wrote, that's why I wrote the book. Right. I know that that book is 100% accurate. And one guy said, I saw a tape of the Hagler Monroe fight. Oh, you did really? Where did you get that? Because there was a snowstorm that night and our film crew couldn't get there. But all you have to do is read the newspaper stories the next day about what Hagler said and how he admitted that he wasn't there yet. That, you know, people, such that's that was one of the impetus for writing the book. You, you read things that people say, they act like they were there and they weren't. Right. I mean, I live this. I mean, I, listen, when Boogaloo Watts got that decision over Hagler, the first one, which was a bad decision, and Boogaloo Watts was from Philly, and I was the promoter, and I was disgusted. I looked at the, one of the judges from Philly, and I, I said, what are you doing? And the president of the spectrum said, how can this happen? So, and Boogaloo Watts to this day doesn't like to talk to me, doesn't, won't talk to me, but, you know, you don't have to win a fight 10 0. The Yankees don't have to win 20 to 0 to win a game. They can no. win a game 2 to 1. When the fight was over, you knew Hagler won. Right. It wasn't the worst to see. It wasn't like Everett Escalera, but there was no question who won the fight. It was Hagler. But the, the Willie Monroe fight was a completely different story. I don't, I hate to use this, this um, slogan every dog has its day, his day, because Willie Monroe was no dog. But that was his greatest night. His yeah, greatest I, I, night. I love that line about the Boogaloo Watts fight. About it wasn't the worst decision I've seen, but it wasn't a good one either. You know, that was a great line. And and 
I was embarrassed. I, you know, I remember going to Sam Silverman after the fight, the promoter from Boston, Boston yeah. who was sitting outside the dressing room. I said, Sam, I'm sorry. Uh, and he, he looked at me. Now, Boston was also known for bad decisions. Right. He said, Russell, don't worry about it. I've seen it before. Yeah, I, I remember at the Hall of Fame when, when uh, Pacquiao fought Bradley the first time and Michael Buffer the next day said, well, this is part of boxing and it'll happen again. And someone yelled, oh, but it shouldn't. And people have to bear in mind, I guess, that after the fight, uh, Pacquiao said, I'm not angry at Tim Bradley. He's not the judge. And he faced such abuse. And the same thing with Boogaloo Watts. It's not his fault that the judges did that. But why is it just incompetent judging? People tend to read into it that, you know, the mob was involved or they were paid off. But is it just the judges just got it wrong? Um, the fight wasn't big enough to involve the mob. Right. I think that I think I think the judges were just homers. Mm -hmm. Figured that the promoter me would want it that way, would want the Philly guy, you know, insulting the fans. Right. Um, I, the only listen, as I said in the book, the only fight that I promoted that I knew was crooked was the Everett Escalera title fight, in which the Philly judge took money to vote against Everett. That's the only one I know was, you know, 100% crooked. I don't care what anybody says. I was there. I know what happened. Right. Did I see the money change hands? No, you never see the money. You change. don't have to, you know, from you look at that fight and you see that Everett won between 10 and 12 out of 15 rounds. And you, you know, you look at the history of the Philly judge and you see that the people that were in the building that night, and remembering how naive I was, I wasn't even 30 years old yet, and how we just got taken for a ride. Wow. It was Tyron Everett, the biggest, I don't want to say disappointment because he was a magnificent fighter, but the biggest upset, you would say, in the fact and how his life ended, that he had such a bright future in front of him? Yeah, I guess you could say that. Uh, I, You know, I hate to... to I hate pound for pound lists. I hate, you know, comparing fighters from different eras. You don't know, like Jeff Chandler was 28 when he had to, when they took his license away. So who knows? And he was still learning on the job. Right. Uh, he lost his title because he had one arm that day. But um, you could go back through the history of boxing. Percy Bassett, the great featherweight from the early 50s, was 25 when he'd suffered a detached retina back in the days before you had those operations. So, you know, Philly is, is strewn with those kind of stories. And that's why Philly, Rocky, it's a blue collar town. It's like, it's like Henry Cooper. He never won the heavyweight title. He was probably the most, one of the most popular fighters in England. Right. Like Benny Briscoe never won the title or Gil Turner, but they were two of the most gypsy Joe Harris. Right. There's a guy who could have been great, who knows? You know, their careers were cut short, but that's what made Philly. Well, I wanted to ask you about Gypsy Joe. I'm glad you brought him up. Fantastic fighter, fascinating person, and you blind in one eye, fought most of his career like that. And then the this commissioner, is it McCall, who just comes in and says, okay, you can't fight anymore. I mean, no, well, what, what really, it was, it was he lost his license before he tried to get his license back when McCall was in. Well, here's what happened. They knew Gypsy Joe was blind. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you got doctors examining. One of the chief doctors at the athletic commission was an eye doctor. But Gypsy Joe was a loose cannon. And he was always late. We They used to bring the fighters in a week ahead of time before the big fights. They called it for a pre-fight physical, you know, the stethoscope and all that BS. But it was really to have a press conference with the press. And Gypsy was always late. And Herman Taylor, who was promoting some of his... After he lost to Griffith, his first fight in the summer of 68, he was coming back that November to fight Manny Gonzalez from Texas in his next fight. And Herman Taylor was promoting the fight. Now, Herman Taylor was connected. I mean, you almost had to be in those days. Right. Um, you couldn't get, back in the day, you couldn't get a job as a dealer in Atlantic City at any, at any of the underground blackjack tables without going through Herman Taylor. That's how strong he was. Anyway, so Gypsy comes late to the press conference, the pre-fight physical, and Herman Taylor is throwing a fit. So he goes up to Gypsy, says, you know, son, you can't do this. You know, you got to get your act together. I'm paraphrasing. And Gypsy Joe says, go F yourself. You know, get out of my face. Well, all of a sudden, they were discovered that Gypsy Joe was blind. So draw your own conclusions. Right. Well, people, I don't think fans generally realize that people that were mob fighters didn't really have a choice because the mob chose them. And you look at a guy like Johnny Saxton, who, you know, had the stuffing beat out of him and then was just discarded, you know, by the mob after after his usefulness. And the same as when people would say, Frank Sinatra played mob-owned clubs. Well, all clubs at it, during his time were mob-owned. Right, they were the only ones of the disposable income, enough of it to to um, keep them open. Now, Larry Merchant, another great Philadelphian, great writer, um, said that uh, the mob left boxing, and then they were replaced by the sanctioning bodies. Would you agree with that? What was that question? He said, Do "I agree." Yes, Larry Merchant said the mafia exited boxing. And then they were replaced by the sanctioning bodies, this multitude of sanctioning bodies. You know, as you mentioned earlier, I, IBF, WBC, WBA, WBO. And he said all these sanctioning bodies are just criminals gouging money from fighters and managers and promoters. They're killing it. They're killing it. But you know what? It's never going to get together. Why can't they get together? They're never going to get together. None of the heads of the bodies are going to want to take a second seat to ever become you know they say the wbc is the strongest I mean, come on it's i don't know any other business that could be, that could be run like this it's it's the wild west and for years hey that was that was one of the intriguing things about boxing it was the wild west but even though you can show examples of fighters who had to wait like archie moore 99% of the fights that had to be made were made. And they didn't, you know, we didn't marinate them for two or three years. We marinated them for two or three weeks. You know, people are going gaga about Crawford and Spence. And it's a big fight in today's world. But is it any bigger than Emil Griffith and Louis Rodriguez, who fought mm -hmm. four times within three years? Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, it, it's, listen... Dick Tiger would win a win a fight. He'd beat 
He'd beat Ace Armstrong. He'd beat Florentino Fernandez. He'd beat Henry Hank. And then he got a shot at Gene Fulmer. Right. That's the way it was. Yeah. You, you, you earned your shot and you got it. There wasn't all this ducking and years going by. Yeah, you could show me examples. You know, the baloney they talk about, Ray Robinson ducking Charlie Burley and these other ridiculous stories that pop up from people who are like 40 years old. Right. You know, what do they know about what went on? What do any of us know? You know right. You mentioned two great fighters uh, from Angelo's stable, Florentino Fernandez, and his favorite fighter, which a lot of people don't know, was was um, Louis Rodriguez. But oh, just one of the most underrated fighters in boxing history. I was at, now I saw three of the four fights. The first one with a 10-rounder with Griffith, I thought Rodriguez won, okay? The second one in L.A. for the title, Rodriguez did win. I saw the third one live. It was June 8th of 63. My dad took me to Madison Square Garden. It was a split decision. One judge had a 10-5 Rodriguez, which is what I had it as a kid, but they gave it to Griffith. The only one that I know that Griffith really won was the fourth one in Las Vegas. I saw that on TV. But given those decisions, the legacy of Rodriguez and Griffith could be completely reversed. Right. I mean, one of the ways that I like to judge a fighter, and it's in a book called The Sour, uh, the Sweet and Sour Science, something like that, uh -huh. is what the, what the champion did in his post-championship days. Okay, so if you look at the post-championship days of both Griffith and Rodriguez, who were not big punchers, which meant they had to win decisions and they won them on the road in hostile territories. I mean, come on. Who do, first of all, guys don't even do that today. I mean, no. why do I have to fight him in his backyard? Before casinos, everybody fought somebody in somebody's backyard. But they, I mean, Rodriguez, what was his record? Like 105 wins and seven losses, something yeah. like that? Yeah, Angelo's favorite fighter. He was a fighter that influenced Muhammad Ali tremendously. And Angelo told me when he when he was fighting Manzan, he said after the 10 rounds, 10th round, excuse me, he said, your head, just run, stick and move. You and mean Benvenuti? Benvenuti, you're right. I'm sorry. Nino, you, thank you. Nino Benvenuti. And 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 Louis Louis said, "I'm going to knock him out." And Angelo grabbed him by his face. You're not knocking Benvenuti out. He's five times your size. Just run, dab, run. And he goes out the next round, and he he, you know, he gets caught. tries tries to slug, gets knocked out, comes back to the corner, and says, "I, I guess I should have just followed your advice and run." And Angelo just, you know, slaps himself in the head. And Angelo, you know, he says, I want to get him again. What do you mean you want to get him again? You just had him in front right. of you. You didn't listen the first time. Right. So uh, it, it would it would drive nuts. You have a, a wonderful a, a photo in your book of Harold Johnson, um, the great light heavyweight champ. And he fought uh, Willie Pastrano, who I think was fifth choice to fight him. Third, third choice. Third, third choice. choice. The other two guys. Now, what happened there? The other two guys fell out or were well, Moro Mina from Peru, mm -hmm. the greatest Peruvian fighter ever. He, he suffered a detached retina, so he was out. 
He was replaced by Henry Hank. And I don't remember why Hank was out. And then they put in Pastrano and I watched the fight as a kid. And, you know, to me, okay, I was a Harold Johnson fan. I loved him. He was my boyhood idol. But he didn't lose that fight. I mean, it was just that it was just an outrageous decision. But Angelo, listen, I love Angelo. He was one of the great ambassadors for boxing ever. But just him being in the corner. As nobody knew Skinny Davidson in Harold's corner. Nobody knew Pat Oliveri, the manager. So they gave it to Pastrano. I mean, I mean, and they weren't even smart enough to have a return clause in the contract. That's how, you know, unsophisticated. And then and Harold could get, never get a shot. Meanwhile, he goes to Finland and beats a guy named Pekka Kakonen. He goes to Germany and beats an undefeated guy named Luther Stengel. I mean, he was still beating world-class fighters in their backyards, but right. he got old. He got old. The consensus was that Johnson won that fight, as you said, convincingly, and they just took it away from him for whatever reason. And 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 I guess, you know, having Angelo in your corner certainly helps, you know, and having Chris as your brother, you know, doesn't hurt either. No, they were two great guys, but... Chris more so than Angelo. Chris, wonderful guy, but he, Chris knew everybody in boxing. He, he dealt with Carbo and Palermo and all those guys. And listen, when Angelo came to Philly in 75 with Vinnie Curto to fight Benny Briscoe at the Spectrum, it, it, I remember going around at the end of the ninth round, I went around to all the sports, all the boxing writers at ringside said, Briscoe hasn't won a fight by decision, I don't know, in four or five years. All his wins have been by knockout. That's the kind of fight it was to me. It wasn't even close. And they scored it a draw, and Vinnie Curto could have won the standing high jump that night when they called that fight a draw. I've got the film of it, and wow. you can see, because Angelo was in the corner, and I'm convinced that that's why they gave the fight a draw. Now, they fought again in Boston when Benny was completely gone and Vinny beat him. But, you know, it just happened. I Angelo, Angelo mm -hmm. was a great guy. And we used I you know, we didn't talk too much about that fight when I'd be with him. But he knew how I felt about Willie Pastrano. We, he would kid me all the time. Well, um, George Chevallo would talk to me when, when Angelo was... Uh, in the corner of Pete Rademacher, is that the correct pronunciation? What's um, the pronunciation? I didn't know he was in the corner. And when he fought Chevallo. When he fought Chevallo. And, and George said to me, I know you love Angelo and he's like a dad to you, but he had a lot of tricks up his sleeve and he knew how to influence people. So when I asked Angelo about this, he said, yeah, I learned a lot of tricks from Ray Arcel. For instance, he said, when I, you couldn't do it today, but when a, your fighter knocks the other guy down, Arcel will get up on the ring apron with his fighter's uh, rope, forcing the referee to speed up his count. And he said, Angelo said there were a lot of tricks like that in boxing where you can influence the ref and judges. And, you know, I learned from Ray Arcel, who learned from Doc Bagley, and he said it goes on and on. There's a lot to do. So, 
which brings me to something else. I was watching the fights last night, the Tim Zhu fight, which was on. It was on too late for me to be honest, but, and then the the fight before that, uh, earlier in the evening with uh, Regis Prograde, and in Prograde's corner, there were three guys talking to him, and Angelo's rule was one guy. He said the fighter can only take in so much during a corner. Do you, as Wait, the, what, what did you say? The fighter what? Angelo said a fighter can only take in so much. Oh, right, right, right. He's focused on what he's doing. So to have three guys talking is just too much. So a real trainer would tell the other two guys to shut up. Right. As, in charge. As he did but, with Bandini. You know? <laughs> so it, it, do you think the quality of the training, I know it has in Canada, it's gone downhill. I mean, for a long time, Canadian fighters, obviously, if you want to make it, you got to go to the United States for any fighter and to get good quality trainers but I'm oh sure so these guys were lifers mm -hmm. now you got you got to there's too many fathers involved look at the aggravation they're going through with tfimo lopez right i mean you know those guys ray arcel whitey bimstein freddie brown chicky ferrera these guys were charlie golden they were lifers this was mm -hmm. they weren't like electricians who came to the gym and trained guys at night you know this was their livelihood they knew what they were doing they knew all the tricks joe polino in philly really reddish i mean i grew up yank durham wenzel mccall jimmy arthur these sam saw these guys were these guys knew what they were i remember sitting quinzel trained benny briscoe for a while and he had a young kid named young blood williams who was in his second or third fight at the Spectrum. So this is like 74. So what am I? I'm 20, I'm 27. And the first round starts. <laughs> and I'm I'm yelling instructions, young blood Williams, you know, for my press seat. And Quinzel, Quinzel turns to me and says, son, sit in your seat, will you? <laughs> Be quiet. I'll take care of this. You know, but today right. you got every Tom, Dick, and Harry telling telling the guys what to do. And you know what? Some of them need to be told today. Some of these trainers today. Now you're watching. Okay, so you're talking about the TV fights last night. You mm -hmm. know where I was last night? I was where? at Bally's Casino in Atlantic City. Sal Musamichi was running an off TV show. The fights were good. There couldn't have been 250 people in the 1500 seat ballroom. I had two kids on the show because I'm just trying to help out kids to help them out. Joey DeWaco, a heavyweight who's fought everybody, mm -hmm. scored a one-round knockout. And this kid that wants me to help him, a junior welterweight from New York, from Ireland, Larry Friars, scored the biggest win of his career. He wow. beat a 14-1 and kid named Dimash Nyazov. I mean, to see, to see the joy on Larry Friars' face for for winning that BS title they gave him. Forget the title. It was a big win. Here's a kid that the New York Commission didn't want to even license two fights ago, and they finally did. He won a fight in Sony Hall, and then he gets this biggest fight of his career. I'm just interested in helping these kids. That's what boxing is about for me today. I got about a half a dozen kids who deserve to be matched according to their ability 
Larry Friars is now 13 and six, but he had a better, better resume than the guy he beat who was 14 and one. And we knew it. And we knew it because he's fought Ohio State, UCLA, Southern Cal, Alabama. He didn't fight, you know, the little sisters of the poor or Centenary or Howard. Mm-hmm. Not knocking those colleges, but some because too often these kids are sacrificed against Olympic gold medalists or undefeated prospects. And while they get paid better money, they get their heads handed to them. They deserve to be able to fight on their own level without the manager buying the fight, which is something that I think should be outlawed, but can't be where I could go to a promoter and say, listen, I'll pay Larry Friars. I'll pay his opponent. I'll pay the opponent's travel, hotel, meals, medicals. I'll pay Larry and get him a win. That's what's going on. This used to be in Arkansas, used to be in Georgia, used to be in South Carolina. Now it's all over. The, it's in Philly. How could this happen in Philly yeah. where these kind of fights are being promoted? This was like the, the bedrock of tough fights. Now even Philly managers are buying fights. So that's where my career is now. I haven't had a promoter's license since 2019. I'm just managing or advising some kids. And you know what? It's a lot of fun. And I told my wife the other day, I don't have contracts with any of these kids. There's about six. And I found out that over the years, I had more trouble with fighters I had under contract than I had with fighters I had handshakes with. I never had a contract with Jeff Chandler. I never had a contract with Tony Thornton, the punching postman. They were, you know, they were real people. Well, your word was your bond. People could trust you. And I and I trusted them, and and that's the way it was. But it, it's just it's it's just crazy today. It's crazy. I mean, look what's going on with Ryan Garcia and Gold and De La Hoya. I mean, yeah. Come on, they can't get together. You're talking millions of dollars. You can't get that together. You can't sit down like gentlemen and work it out. You got lawyers. You know what? If Joey DeWaco decides to stiff me, which he won't, what am I going to do? Hire a lawyer and take him to court over six or seven hundred bucks? Forget it. The lawyers, they're going to get paid millions to settle that De La Hoya Garcia case. For what? For what? Yeah, it's. I, I know Angela had a big problem with Mike Trainer with regards to Sugar Ray Leonard because, for a lot of reasons, I mean, he stiffed him on money, but. Well, that's a big reason. Yeah. And he also said, and he forced him under pressure to sign a contract in the dressing room, even though his son, Jimmy, when he called, said, don't sign it. And Angelo said, I have to run it by my lawyer. Mike Turner said, I don't talk to lawyers. (laughs) A lawyer won't talk to other lawyers. Right. And and Angelo's son, Jimmy, said, actually, you're only supposed to talk to a lawyer. You're not supposed to talk to Angelo. But... Mike Trainer wanted to match up Ray Leonard and Thomas Hearns after they only had 13 or 14 fights. And Angelo said, let them both win a title and then have them fight and then make big money. Why wreck it now? And just all these, Angelo would tell me, all the, like you're saying, all these peripheral people who know nothing about the sport, who come into the sport and then, um, you know, water it down. I can't live with the fighters. I don't live with them. Right. I can't, I can't control who they talk to on the street. 
And, you know, the promoter's always raping you. The manager's always stealing your money. They, you know, they put it in their ear. It's, it's like, I don't want to get into politics, but it's like Trump. It's like Trump. Yeah. I got screwed. I got screwed. They think, you know, and you hear it enough. You hear it enough. They pound it into you. Right. It becomes the truth. You know, the promoter is always the bad guy. You know, I wrote in my book, we did 26 consecutive shows at the Blue Horizon over a three or four year period, and we lost money on every single show. Now, who's going to believe that? Who's going to believe that? Right. Oh, come on, Russell, you're laundering money. You know, it's not true. You're. I mean, I was there. I know what happened. I saved everything. I have every profit and loss statement. I have every bill. I have every program, including all the Flash Gordon programs from all my shows. Those were wonderful programs. Oh, my God. He, it, he talk all day. What was the fight you saw when you were 12 or 13 that made you fall in love with boxing? You watched it with It wasn't friends. the, you mean on television? The first fight I saw on television when I was 12 was Gene Fulmer and Carmen Basilio, their first fight from the Cow Palace in 1959. And wow. You know, I think, you know, it was a vicarious thrill before I even knew the meaning of the word vicarious. You know, you picture yourself up there and you're going to, and I was certainly far from being a tough kid. And I, and I lived in an untough neighborhood, but as a present for my 14th birthday, my father took me to my first live fight against my mother's protest. And when I walked into conventional, Angela, actually Angela was there with a fighter named Dunvayan who beat Len Matthews. He was the number one contender and lightweight at the time, but December 6, 1960. And I walked in there and the show hadn't started yet. And I saw that ring with all the cigar smoke. It was empty at the time. The first fight had started and it was, it was so majestic. And I said, this is for, I, I had an epiphany before I even knew what that word meant. And I said to myself, this is going to be my life somehow. And I was raised in, I didn't go to school with any black kids till 10th grade. Okay. And the crowd there, there was 5,000 people, maybe 40% were black, maybe 20% Hispanic. And I, I said, this is so cool. I've never been in this atmosphere before. And I went up to a guy, I don't know, light-skinned guy, and I, I said something to him. I don't know what I said, like, who's going to... As I was about to say something to him, he turned to his his buddy and started speaking to him in Spanish. I went, holy shit, <laughs> look at this. It was a whole new world for me. Wow. So I just, that was it. There was no st st stopping me. And it's funny, I don't know if you know who Chuck Hassan is. Yes. Okay. Chuck Hassan knows as much about boxing history, certainly in Philly, as anybody. Chuck Hassan and I were both born December 9th, 1946. Right. Okay. Our fathers took us to the same first fight, December 6, 1960. That's Truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, that's fake. Bashir. Yeah, absolutely. That was meant to be. Um, we, we have a question for you from Britain. Carl W. says, Russell, great story. I, I am based in the UK and just wondered if you ever worked with Frank Warren or Barry Hearn and what you think of Eddie Hearn as a promoter. I think you've answered that already, but. but. We'll save Eddie for last. Um, I first, I worked with Barry Hearn 
Well, first, you know what Barry Hearn brought? Um, what was the fight? Was it Nigel Ben and Michael Watson when Watson got messed up? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I had a kid on the show, an undercard named Joe Alexander. So I, but Barry flew me over to London as a favor. I guess he was stuck. And Joe Alexander was turned down at the pre-fight physical at the day that at the weigh-in either the, i forget if it was the day of the fight or the day before i can't remember this was 1991 but barry was nice enough not to kick us out and we stayed for two or three days and went home so the next year he called for tony thornton to fight chris eubank in glasgow scotland which was a fight that some more than a few people thought Thornton won. Anyway, when we got over there, part of the deal I made, Barry, we agreed on everything, but I want to tell you one thing, one stipulation. Do not deduct from the purse the money you spent on keeping me in England when Joe Alexander got turned down. I don't want you to be agreed. Barry was a gentleman. He was a great guy. And, you know, it was everything was terrific. Um Frank Warren, I did business when Charles Brewer fought Joe Calzaki in Cardiff, Wales in 2002, I think. And it was a great fight. Everybody was shocked because Brewer was a great, was an exciting fighter with a weak chin, but he stood up that night. He stood up and I thought the fight was a little bit closer. He certainly didn't win it, but um, it was a terrific experience. I never had a problem with either guy. Um, no problem. You know, of course, Mickey Duff and I were close. We had done a lot of business, but um, those guys over there got into it with each other. As far as Eddie Hearn, I don't have anything to say. Okay. <laughs> That's fair enough. It's the old line. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. Right. So, I, know, I, I, don't, I don't like, I'll just say this. He cost me Gabe Rosado. Gabe Rosado was my fighter. And I lost him because of Eddie Hearn. And, I, you know, I, I would never do, I would never talk. I remember going into the dressing room one night at the arena in Philly or the Spectrum at a Herman Taylor show, trying to make a fight in the dressing room with guys that were fighting that night from Herman, for Herman Taylor. And Joe Grammy, the old manager of Tex Cobb and Thornton and Bob Montgomery, said, you don't ever do that. You don't ever go into another promoter's dressing room and try and make a fight okay so if you're not doing that you certainly don't go to another guy's fighter and talk to him you just right. don't do it That's but like i say, you can't steal a fighter who doesn't want to be stolen right angelo never forgave sylvester stallone he had a football player he was developing into a boxer and stallone said i'll take him for a couple months just to use for rocky and and um never paid angelo for him he said he would never return the fighter and kept saying to the guy you're going to be an actor and then just let him go and by the time he got back to angelo angelo wasn't interested but at the hall of fame when they inducted sylvester stallone angelo wouldn't shake his hand was that lee canalito i think it was yeah yeah he lee, just... lee canalito fought for us one night at the sands in atlantic city in the 80s big guy big guy and rich giacchetti was in his corner and when they walked out to the introductions, Canalito turned to Richie, told me the story. Canalito turned, turned to Richie and said, am I in tough tonight? 
<laughs> That's not really the right time to be asking. <laughs> um, now, Carl has another question. I don't want to make this British-centric, but best British fighter ever. I have to go with Lennox Lewis. Would you agree? You, Hard to say. You know what? In 20 years, Lou, there's going to be guys in the NBA who are nine feet tall, and they're going to say the guys today couldn't compete with them. In, in other words, was Lennox Lewis greater in his time than Randy Turpin was in his? Was he a bigger deal to British boxing than than Freddie Mills was? Henry Cooper was... Uh, yeah. Sure, if Lennox Lewis is fighting Henry Cooper in 2010, yeah, he's going to kick his ass. Yeah. He's fighting him in 1964, where training was different, traveling was different, eating was different, and he probably wouldn't be 6'6 in 1964. So, no, I'm not. Listen, there are some terrific fighters in Reese. Pernell Whitaker, to me, could have been a force in any era. Right. Duran could have been a could Duran beat Ike Williams? I don't know, but he would have been he would have he, Ike Williams wouldn't walk him out walk over him any more than Duran would, you know. You can't compare eras. You can't right. you can't say Lennox, you know, suppose John L. Sullivan. Could Lennox Lewis beat John L. Sullivan? Okay. When are they fighting in 1890 in some cornfield right. where you had to take a train? And you're you're fighting like this, you know. With the, yeah. Yeah. On a on a floating barge. Right. And you're not. And again, you're not six. So it's these are joke comparisons. Right. I, I stay. I, I used to get involved in them. I mean, nobody even talks about. Do you know that it, Kid Gavilan had about 125 fights against the biggest monsters of of all time? Okay, he was never stopped. He was on the deck three times, three times. He got up to win two of them. And the third one against Ike Williams, he won in rematches. I mean, imagine that. Uh, you know, and these guys who won't fight overseas, who won't fight in somebody's backyard, I don't want to get into it. I'm starting to babble. He was not, in my opinion, the greatest British fighter of all time. Well, I, I worked for Lennox. I don't think Lennox would himself declare himself to be the greatest British fighter. No, I don't think he was that kind of guy. And and I think if you if I had to make a choice, I'd say Jimmy Wilde, the the the, the mighty Adam. Yeah, the mighty Adam, who you know, except in his last fight when he got knocked out by Pancho Villa, he, I mean, he was unbeatable. And in in the '60s, when they asked him about the flyweights today, he went, "They're bums. They don't go five rounds with me." They go five rounds if I, you know, if I'm drinking tea in between each round. But he said, there's no way these guys beat me. And Benny Lynch, a Scottish flyweight champ. So, so yeah, I mean, box, especially in British boxing, it goes back 300 years. So it's hard to say categorically who was uh, the best. Carl said it's about opinions and that no matter the area you fight in, you have two arms and two fists. But the thing is, the, the styles change and like you're saying with john l Sullivan, like this and the size and the height and the training and the travel yeah. and the eating and you know i mean you look at marciano he trained 
in water up to his chin to throw punches so he could throw them as quickly when he was out of water. And Angelo said he was there the first day he walked into the gym to see Charlie Goldman. And Goldman brought in a seasoned heavyweight who was a mover. And he said, Marciano was falling down every time he threw a punch, he almost fell out of the ring. And Angelo kept saying to Charlie, I wanna go to lunch, I'm hungry. It's almost 1.30. And Charlie says, I got a minute left on the watch. 60 seconds, I'll treat you to a steak. Just let him do it. I got to watch. I got to give him the whole minute. And as they look, Marciano is, is so off balance. He keeps falling. He lands one right hook on this guy, drops him, fractures his jaw. The guy doesn't fight again. And Angelo said, what do you think? And, he, and Charlie said, I'll take him because you can't teach that. Everything right. else can be taught. You know, but power like that, you just can't teach. No, Marciano takes a lot of, of uh, gruff, a lot of yeah. gruff from, from modern day. Oh, he was a cruiserweight. Stop it. Uh, you know, he didn't fight Nino Valdez. Well, the Archie Moore beat Nino Valdez and, yeah. and Marciano beat Archie Moore. I and mean, the fight. Valdez is, cried after the fight. Right. Walcott was old. Walcott, yeah. that was the best Walcott there ever was, the one yeah. that fought Marciano that night. Yeah, and, and people tend, you, as Angela would say, you can only fight who's around in your era at the time they're willing to fight you, and you can't put down Walcott because he was the undisputed world heavyweight champion. So, I mean, that fight in Philadelphia, I mean, Walcott's probably still on the mat after that. Is that the best right hand you've ever seen? So, uh, yes, the best one-punch right hand. Followed by Robinson's left hook on Gene Fulmer. I'm just about to say the perfect punch. Better than, and because I can't compare Foster and Mike Quarry because you can't compare Mike Quarry to Gene Fulmer. Right. As far as, so Robinson's left hook on Fulmer and Marciano's right hand on Walcott. And by the way, when we we're talking about Lennox Lewis, my favorite Lennox Lewis fight, Ray Mercer, when he stood and fired. Great fight, close fight. But that to me was my, that was one of the few times I enjoyed watching Lennox. That was the most enjoyment I ever got out of a Lennox Lewis fight, was watching that particular fight that nobody talks about. It's like nobody talks about Holyfield and Dokes, right. one of the most underrated heavyweight fights you could ever see. That was a war. I mean, oh. Holyfield had to bring it up from down home to beat him, to right. get past Dokes. That was an incredible fight. You know, when, when Lennox was promoting fights here, when I was working for him for a short time, he and we touched on this earlier, he would shake his head where fighters would come to him and say, well, I should get this kind of money and I should get that kind of money. And he would say, you're a local Canadian fighter with an eight and three record. Why do you think he should be making a couple hundred grand a fight? I don't understand. You have very little amateur experience. And well, this guy, you know, fighting in New York, he, he's getting this much. Right. He was an Olympic gold medalist. So that's why he gets a signing bonus. That's why he gets big money. You're just a local fighter. And I, I find that, do you find that happens a lot today? Fighters are just pricing themselves out of the market? Um. Oh, well, that's a listen. Look how long it took to make, took to make Crawford and Spence. Right. You know, I, I would walk into the gym in the 70s and guys would attack me. Get me a fight. Get me a fight. Okay, I'll put you in the sixth round of your fight. And Joe Blow from Brooklyn. Fine. Didn't ask me how tall he was, whether he was righty or lefty, what his record was. Because you access to records back in those days, there was no box rec. 
they, you know, uh, and the ring record book came out once a year. And right. you'd have to buy a ring magazine and go through the agate type in the back, that six point type. If you were bringing in a kid from Mexico and find out, you know, who guys just wanted to fight. That's all they wanted to do. And, you know, we were paying four round fighters $50 when I started at the Blue Horizon. Six round kids were making 75. And if you were fighting the semifinal, you got 90. And we were charging five and three dollars to get in, and they just they just wanted to fight. It's just it's so oh well they all wound up punchy. Listen, they're all going to wind up. A lot of them are going to wind up in bad shape, regardless. Because you know, listen, we're just starting to learn about football. Right, we're just starting to learn that. But and I tell these guys, it's not the fights. It's all that sparring you do every day in that gym, getting hit every day stop it already you know you know how to fight you don't need a hundred rounds of sparring for a four round fight imagine, right. imagine if you're boxing for three days in the gym four rounds a day that's 12 rounds a week that's that's 36 minutes a week you're getting hit in the head that can't be good for you no i i remember a good friend of mine is art hafey the the featherweight from right. nova scotia who beat Oliveras and he said I just sparred too much and uh back in the day you know uh I I had a guy I beat and but I had a big hematoma and my manager just said you're fighting in two weeks and I have the next fight and I go home to Halifax for Christmas and I'm walking in the middle of the road and a friend says what are you doing and he said I'm walking and he said but you're in the road he said, no I'm not and then of course they take him to the hospital and he's he's got a severe bl blood uh on the brain got a hematoma but he said i had to, i couldn't quit because i had my biggest fights coming up against little red lopez and arguello and back in the 70s you know they're for 25 grand a piece i can't turn that down no it's a lot of money back then and especially for um Feathers. Um, There's a good good point here. Carl brings up. He said, uh, from a promoter's perspective, uh, you've seen what's going on in the Middle East with fighters getting paid, and same in golf, untold tens of millions. I mean, how does this? I mean, this, I guess, negatively changes the boxing landscape. But how do you feel that it affects the boxing? Hey, it's, it's good for the for the one to two to five percent of the fighters who can make that kind of money. Right. Um, I can sit here and say that I'm not in favor of the way Saudi Arabia treats women. Agreed. Um, but, um, which is what the PGA says to the LIV on the golf tour. But, you know, you're talking about unheard millions of dollars being paid to, to kids who came from abject poverty. So I don't like it. I don't think it bodes well for the future of the sport. I think there's good. It's just like I say, there's good fighters from Philly, but Philly boxing is dead. I mean, every now and then there's a good fight next week in Philly. Uh, Tevin Farmer's fight Avery Sparrow, which I don't understand how they were able to make that fight in a 13, in a 1,000 seat arena other than Tevin Farmer bankrolling the fight. But you know, on a consistent basis, you can't draw a thousand people to a fight in Philly on a consistent basis. That's sad. 
Well, that is sad because Philly was one of the four corners or two corners, I guess, with New York of the boxing world for well over 100 years. I mean, you know, oh, you had St. Louis, you had Detroit, you had Chicago, you had Dallas, you had Chris was in Miami Beach, you had oh, the Olympic. Oh my God, I was fortunate enough to be at two fights at the Olympic in LA. One, Don Chargan put me on the front row. Lupe Pintor against Superfly Sandoval for the Bantamweight title. You know, people say, well, is your biggest regret not signing Marvin Hagler? My biggest regret is not working harder to make Jeff Chandler and Lupe Pintor. That's a regret I have. And you know what? The fight would have belonged at the Olympic because it was a bigger fight out there than it would have been in, in Philly or Atlantic City. And Jeff wouldn't have cared because he went to Tokyo twice and he won the title against a Puerto Rican in Miami. And that would have been, but there just wasn't, you know, I just didn't work hard enough to do it. But, you know, that's, that's a big regret I have. What was, well, I want to ask you, when you're, I mean, you have a who's who of all time great fighters. When your fighters that you promoted and nursed from the beginning to a world title, the night they won the world title, were you, were you able to enjoy at that moment or were you so engrossed in making sure the whole promotion is going smoothly that it took a while for it to sink in that this guy is now, Jeff Chandler, is now a world champion? Um, when Chandler won the world title in Miami, I, rem I remember running up. I've been in the ring three times in my life, inside the ropes, because I don't believe in it. I think it's a bunch of bullshit. You know, the promoter, the agent, the manager, the, the, the lawyer. I mean, come, who cares? Get out of the ring. I was forced to go into the ring at the Everett Escalera fight because Butch Lewis wanted to take all the credit for it. He was working for Top Rank. So I had to go into the ring. I was in the ring when Marvin Johnson beat Leslie Stewart to win the title for the third time. Fred Burns made me get in the ring. And he made me get in the ring when Prince Charles Williams beat Bobby Chess. But, you know, when I was writing the book, um, I said, you know what, did, did I enjoy this? I mean, I have video. My number one moment in boxing will always be Benny Briscoe over Tony Mundine in Paris in 74. And I have, I have video of the dressing room that my brother-in-law took. Video, not photos, video of me wearing a polyester three-piece suit with a big bow tie that a clown would squirt water out of. And I had a, I looked like Gene Shallot, the movie critic with a big mustache. Right. And I'm hugging Benny and I'm kissing him and I got this shit-eating grin. You know, sometimes you can smile and you can't get the smile off your face. I looked like the biggest nerd you ever saw. But when Jason Sosa in 2000, in 16, we went to Beijing and beat Javier Fortuna for the WBA junior lightweight title. Okay? Losing the whole fight. He got off the floor, stopped him in the 11th round. My wife, Linda, who doesn't get that crazy, got up and was screaming. And we went back to the hotel, which was literally across the street from the arena. And Linda went up to her room, and so so they all went up to call the United States. There was a bar that was open in the, in the hotel, neon bar, really dark. The only lights were neon lights. I was the only guy at the bar, a square bar 
there was one group of people at a booth and I sat at that bar. So it was around 11 o'clock at night. And I knew that with the time change, people were soon going to be waking up to read that Sosa had scored this monstrous upset. So I ordered, I said, listen, your whole life, you've got to slow down, enjoy this. Right. Because before you know it, it's going to be morning. So I had two of the most delicious beers of my life. And I just tried to sit there and soak in the satisfaction, especially because it came so late in my career. Right. You know, when you're wondering, do you still have it? You know, can you still do it? And Sosa was as blue collar a fighter as you could find. So, no, I, I think I, I, I tell people now that you're young, enjoy life. You know, it goes so fast. You're so busy wondering yeah. what, even if it's not your promotion, even when there's no, there's no bigger thrill than winning a big fight out of town. And Briscoe Mundine was number one. And actually late in his career, Briscoe and Tony Shiverini in Kansas City in front of 10,000 racists wow. was a big win at the end of his career. And Sosa... Sosa and Fortuna, you got to enjoy it. You got to like, oh yeah, smell the roses, as they say. Is it, it, it just Penny um, Bristol should be in the Hall of Fame, don't you agree? I mean, you competed at such guys in the Hall of Fame that don't have his resume, right? So if you're going by that. You, you know, and I'm not going to mention names because, you know, I wouldn't do that. I'm, I'm at odds with the Hall of Fame. Um, I don't like what's going on at the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. I don't like who's been getting in at the Hall of Fame. I don't like the process. I don't like to see monster ads in the program. And all of a sudden, people who work for the companies that take out those monster ads are getting inducted. And I'm probably going to get sued for slander now. But um, he's got a better resume than some guys that are in the He didn't, didn't win a world title. Joey Archer never won a world title. But he right. beat Dick Tiger. He beat Hurricane Carter. He lost two hairline decisions to Emil Griffith. Today, he'd have a title. Right. But back then, so... George Benton, well, George Benton's in the Hall of Fame as a trainer. Right, great trainer. Who did Bernard Hopkins beat that Benny Briscoe couldn't beat? Who did he beat? That's and I love cool. Bernard Hopkins. I'm not taking anything away from him. But who did he beat that Benny Briscoe couldn't beat? A welterweight in, in Felix Trinidad? Right. Come on. Right. That's a good that, that Kelly Pavlik. I mean, these are all guys that would have been sparring partners for, for uh, Benny Briscoe. Yeah, but see, there I go again, comparing fighters from different eras, and I don't want to do it. But, but that's, that's well, listen, my kids said to me when my kids were like teenagers, they said, but well, they said, what was Benny Briscoe's record? I'd say 66, 24, and five. oh, they started laughing. 24 losses. What's the big deal? You, you can't explain it. You, you just can't explain it. No, it's. One of one of my favorite fighters is the this is going back well over a hundred years. George Dixon from Nova Scotia was the first black man to ever win a world title, right. and 
and people will say, but he had 35, 40 losses, right, out of 800 fights. So, you know, and same with Briscoe. If you look at who he fought and some of the decisions he got screwed on, I mean, definitely you have to look at how great he was and what he did in the ring, what he brought to the sport, his legacy, who he influenced, and the fact that today we're still talking about him and people all over the world are still talking about him. Yeah, they have the Briscoe Awards in Philly that they give every year to us. It's not the Frazier Awards. It's not the Hopkins Awards. It's the Briscoe Awards. Right. It's like Henry Cooper he, in London. They're always going to, he's always going to be revered. Whether or not he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Um, well, uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm on the old timers selection committee for the Hall of Fame. So I'm looking at guys from the 30s or 20s and before, which is one of my favorite eras. And I always get surprised when people say, talk about Tyson Fury, he's a fantastic boxer. And I think, are you kidding me? Ali was a fantastic technical boxer. You know, guys as big as Fury don't have good balance usually. Or, you know, uh, Hasim Rockman would have beaten Joe Lewis. And I always think, but Angelo would say, no one beats Joe Lewis. Greatest fighting machine ever assembled by God or man. He said, on his best night, the second Schmeling fight, Lewis beats any man that ever lived. Hands down. Just absolutely perfect. Um, Carl from Britain again wants to know, just before we let you go, your thoughts on Don King. But I would think everyone has thoughts. Don is, I guess, in his 90s now. Yeah, I think he's 91. Mm-hmm. Um, I did very little business with Don King. Um, probably the biggest fight I ever did with Don King was Jerry Martin when he went into Rahway prison right. and beat James Scott on NBC. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we made the deal. Nobody knew who Jerry Martin was, even though he was in the top 10 and we're sitting in a cell for the dressing room getting ready to go out <clears throat> and two of King's guys come in the dressing room with a contract calling for three options in the event Jerry won. This is the first time it's coming up. We got 20 minutes to go and they're sticking there. I said, get out of here. Well, Don King threatened to cancel the telecast. And I said, he's not going to cancel the telecast. And Ferdy Pacheco comes in who had bought the fight for NBC. And this was the same year that 1980 that Ferdy had taken over and broken the monopoly that Aram and King had on network TV, which they had for years. And, and I had already had Curtis Parker on twice that year on NBC. And Ferdy came in and said, Russell, I cut you, I get I got you on NBC twice. Do me a favor and sign the options. What could I say? So we signed the options. And Jerry went out and beat James Scott. And then Aram came along and wanted to put him in with Eddie Gregory for the title, Eddie Mustafa. And we couldn't do it. I said, we, we were obligated to King. Aram went ballistic. It eventually cost me my job with him. At ES, I was one of the original ESPN promoters, me, Mel Greb, Ernie Terrell, and Dan Duva. And... I said, Bob, the only way I can do it is if you give me a hold harmless indemnity, meaning when King sues, you're responsible for paying for the lawsuit. 
I mean, Teddy Brenner, Aaron was screaming. Teddy Brenner had to take me out of the office to walk around the block in New York and have lunch. And Aaron eventually did. He gave me a hold harmless indemnity. And then the next year, he got rid of me as one of the original ESPN guys. And um, they eventually settled the lawsuit. They traded lawsuits. You don't sue me for Jerry Martin. I won't sue you for something else. But listen, I've had a good relationship with Aram, but no relate, no marriage is perfect. You have your ups and downs. So right. I, I never trusted King, but he never screwed me. He um, never screwed me. Tim Witherspoon, when I said I would be interviewing you, he said he he said Russell very tough but very fair. You know, honest. Tim guy. Witherspoon is a completely different person today from the one that Don King promoted. I said to him recently, I said, how come you weren't that nice back then? You know, we couldn't talk to you. I said, what are you doing? Why are you do accepting these things? He said, I was young and immature. I didn't know any better. And, and you know, he's a great guy to me. He's a good ambassador for boxing these days. He had his pro debut for me. And though it's not in the official records, the largest crowd in the history of the Blue Horizon. Wow which sat 1,346 people. We had 2,100 people in there. And you know, you say, well, you go to a place and it was so packed you couldn't move. You couldn't move. I went upstairs and I couldn't get to the ring. But we only reported 1,385 tickets. Right. That may have been the best boxing venue ever. I mean, that, that space, that's the ideal space and the ideal way to watch boxing. Well, the Olympic in LA was pretty good. And I think there's a place in England, I don't know if it's Royal Albert Hall or whatever it is, that they say is pretty good. But the, for its size, the Blue Horizon was, guys used to, just wanted to fight at the Blue Horizon. I have two questions to ask you, two more questions before I let you go. One, why is my, I loved, as a teenager, Mike Rossman. And... William Bentlove said you were the only one that get him, that was able to get him in the last 40 years to come out to a public um, event. Function. Yeah, why Why is he so reticent to come out? Like Nigel Collins said to me, doesn't like the media, doesn't trust the media, doesn't want to have anything to do with other people. But why? Is there a reason for that? Um, Mike Rossman lives in a rundown, abandoned motel. On Pacific Avenue, mm -hmm. a block right across the street from what used to be the Golden Nugget, where Jerry Martin fought Saad Muhammad in 1981, now shuttered, uh, is going to become a hotel. He he has a problem with alcohol. Mm -hmm. He always had a problem with alcohol. Even the Galindez fight, the first Galindez fight, was the one where he was completely sober and went away to camp. And um, he, he he likes me because he likes my wife. In fact, I said to Linda last night, we ought to take Mike out to dinner one night. She said, fine. He just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. He has his, I got him to go to the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame last year. Duran was there. A lot of guys were there getting paid $40, $50, $60 to sign their autographs. He didn't want to charge anybody. He said, how can I, it's a good thing about him. He said, how can I, I said, Michael. I finally got him to accept $10 for three pictures at the end of, for $30. He said, how can I charge people to sign an autograph? 
but you know he's got a decent pension from the roofers union which keeps him solvent but he's just a listen his father cheated him out of money mm -hmm. stole his money double deal did double dipped him on your own father that's, your own father that's horrible. there's 150 grand on the table and you're putting 50 in your pocket and taking your cut out of the hundred that's unforgivable your own father unconscionable so but he you know i at his father's funeral he cried he cried that's when he told me he was making one more comeback i probably i might be the only person in boxing he still talks to so but he came there and randy gordon was doing an interview with him and two minutes into the interview he turned and walked away just walked away yeah so i i i can't explain it um what do you have planned for your father's day rest of your father's day we might go on the beach mm -hmm. or we might, i might take a nap or <laughs> uh, i don't know i was up last night at late at the fights so right. i'm basking in the in the satisfaction that two guys i like larry fryers and, and joey duaco won last night I get, I get a lot of satisfaction out of helping these kids i really do it's 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 put the fun back in boxing which i don't i haven't i didn't see lopez i didn't see the haney loman who fought lomachenko uh haney devin haney. haney i don't i i won't buy a pay-per-view i right. refuse i don't pay for the nba finals i don't pay for the world series i'm not paying for i'm not that interested will i watch crawford and spence yeah i'll go to a bar where they'll let me yeah. and i'll watch it i i think it's outrageous um so i this is what this is where i'm at chris burgos a junior welterweight four wins six losses three draws trying to help him out d'angelo fuentes eight and one featherweight from coconut creek florida trying to help him out bryce mills a nice prospect out of liverpool brings 300 people to turning stone when he fights 12 and one, I'm trying to help him out. This, are any of these guys going to be world champs? I don't know, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to sacrifice them and get them hurt for big money. Right. And to have somebody like you on their side is an incredible boost with all that experience that you bring and all the world champions you've been with and great fighters. I, I tell these managers who buy fights, what are you doing? You got to be the dumbest people on the face of the earth to buy a fight. You're going to be five, six thousand in the hole. So you bought your kid a win. Now what are you going to do? You're going to spend another five or six thousand? Where are you going to make it back? Is your kid going to win the world title? You're going to have to win the world title and defend it a couple times just to break even. Wait, wait the promoters out. They got to come to you. They're running out of opponents. The commissions are starting to turn down guys that have lost five, six in a row by knockout. Wait your turn. I told Larry Friars, I told Bryce Mills, we're not buying fights. We'll wait. We'll get the right fights. I told Joey DeWaco, I said, what your promoter did for you, putting you in those monster fights overseas for six figures, you could have done on your own. Anybody could do that. So now he's won four in a row, okay? He's got a roofing company. He loves to fight. I said, we'll get a break. But when we get the break, 
it's not going to be just for the money. It's going to be for the money, but maybe in a fight that you can win. Yes. So, you know, I get, I like that. I like that. I'm not going to deal with the IBF or the WBC and they're getting franchise belts and right. their interim titles and recess. And, and it's just. They're beneath contempt. And, and someone who's as highly respected as you and has your experience and is in eight different halls of fame and is a historical figure, I mean, that would be beneath you, you know? So, you know what Marilyn Monroe said? It's one of the great quotes. She says, if you survive long enough, you're revered like an old building. It's <laughs> a great line. Angelo would deal with some of these people in boxing in the early 2000s, and he would come away and he'd look at me and say, dumb, 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 dumb mother. You know, he just, he just said, I, yeah, I can't. Just get rid of him, please. I said, what do you mean get rid of him? Just say that I, I'm tired and I, I need to go. I, I just don't want to deal with it anymore. What yeah. a wonder. You know, I, I treasure the dealings I had with Angelo, Chris, Gil Clancy. I mean, these were just, these were guys who gave me respect when I was in my 20s, my early 20s. And they were just, just Rip Valenti. Uh, Teddy Brenner was tough. But he, over the years, he wrote some very nice inscriptions in his book for me, Only the Ring Was Square. Um, we had a mutual respect. But these guys today. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nothing like it. And uh, one quick story before I let you go. I met Angelo when I was 13 when he brought Jose Napoli's to Toronto to fight, to fight Clyde Gray. And I waited after the fight. To meet Angelo and I was talking to him and I was boxing as an amateur. I wasn't very good. And he said, Are you good? And I said, I'm pretty good. And he said, Gotta be special. You can't be in boxing unless you're special. And so I was crestfallen. And he said, But you said you, you like English and history, so you can write about boxing. But he said to me that your problem is your head is so big that the other fighter could hit you without leaving his corner. And so because of that, he's just going to stand there salivating. And it's not fun to get hit from a 20 feet across the ring. Really? Yeah. So then he said, you want to meet the big guy? And then Muhammad came out, at which point I just stood there and cried because I couldn't believe I was meeting him. But um, Great story. he always called him the big guy. I just want to say thank you so, so much for being on. It's been absolutely a privilege and a pleasure. This is the book. $30 in a cut eye. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. Where else is it available? Um, just to go for Amazon. Okay, go for, go for Amazon. This is a wonderful book. And hopefully, hopefully there'll be a second one coming. Oh, geez, no. No, okay. That's enough. This could be turned into a movie, as you know. <laughs> and uh, it's just a fantastic book. I suggest everyone, I not suggest, I urge everyone this would be the greatest Father's Day and Grandfather's Day gift you're going to give to your father or grandfather or your son. And I want to thank Hall of Fame promoter Russell Peltz for taking time uh, and, and allowing us to go over his fantastic, rich, evocative history in the sport, which, thank God for the sport, still continues to this very day. And if there's a Mount Rushmore of, of boxing promoters, he'll be up there with Mike Jacobs. And I guess Tex Rickard would be the other one. 
and 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 Bob Arum. So thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your Father's Day and and Russell and and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Whenever my you pleasure. Thank you. It's been a it's been fun. Oh, thank you. I've had a blast. Uh -huh. Wonderful talk with you. Thank you.